Good morning and welcome to chapel. Welcome back from fall break. We're glad to see everyone here. And we're going to be um, introducing our speaker in a moment, but um, before we do that, I would like to um, just start with a moment of silence for our brother Ezra Capruto, who was in a serious car accident this week and has some pretty serious injuries. So let's just take a moment of silence praying for him and his family. Please join me now in a word of prayer. Creator God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the good things that happened this weekend, a chance to rest and do alternative things to studying and working. We pray that you would be with us in our time together and be with our speaker, Drew, as he brings us the word this morning. Open our hearts. Open our minds. And let your spirit be present among us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Please join in your purple hymnals, voices together, we're going to be singing hymn number 778, Will You Let Me Be Your Servant?
Our scripture today comes from Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. From Luke 22. A dispute also rose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one, is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The word of the Lord. I'm happy to introduce this morning our speaker, Drew Strait, from Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, where he's assistant professor of New Testament and Christian origins. He was a professor of mine when I was there at the seminary, and I really enjoyed studying with Drew, and I say with intentionally because Drew's mode was to welcome and affirm the insight and wisdom of his students. And I think you will find that in conversation today, you will find him to be a curious and engaging conversation partner. And that's why we've invited him this morning to talk about this important topic of Christian nationalism. It's not going to be an easy topic for some of us. Um, it's going to be challenging, but that's what the body of Christ is here for. We're here for the hard stuff. We want to have conversation. So I invite you, after this chapel is over, to Brianna Nichols' Engaging the Bible class. It'll meet in NC 17 at noon. So if you eat lunch before that and have time to, to meet over there, Drew is welcoming anyone, faculty, students, staff, um, to come to that class and continue the conversation today. Drew, welcome. And I would just want to publicly express my gratitude to you for being welcoming and in solidarity and support of me during a pretty tumultuous time in my life while I was in seminary. And Drew's the whole person, people. He's been a pastor. He's a dad with three kids, three super cute kids. And um, yeah, he was pastor at Living Water Community Church in Chicago from 2006 to 2013. So he's not just an academic. So please welcome Drew Strait. Good morning. It's a privilege to be here with you all today. My first time on Goshen College's campus. Topic of my sermon this morning is a volatile one and also a controversial one in many circles in our country right now. That topic 
is what we call white Christian nationalism. The topic of Christian nationalism is a personal one for me, and I'm guessing that it might be a personal one for some of you in this room today as well. For some of you, maybe you have family members or friends or neighbors who've been radicalized by right-wing YouTube videos or right-wing news sources over the last decade or conspiracy theories and misinformation. For others, maybe you feel the personal nature of this topic as you sense the immediate threat that Christian nationalism presents to democracy and also the vulnerable in the United States. For full disclosure though, I did not grow up in the historic peace church tradition. In my family nucleus, pledging allegiance to God and country were sacred and perhaps even overlapping concepts. In fact, I'm pretty confident that I would have created more conflict in my family by questioning the integrity of the U.S. military than the divinity of Jesus. Like millions of my fellow Americans, I was taught from a very young age that pledging allegiance to the flag of the United States of America was a sacred and perhaps even Christian thing to do. It wasn't until the terror attacks on September 11, 2001, that my identity as a Christian began to diverge from nationalism. But what I remember most vividly is the morning on March 20th, 2003, when America lit the skies with its military might to crush the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq through a so-called shock and awe campaign. Even thousands of miles away, the shock and awe felt real as news anchors strapped on military gear to ride in tanks and film the spectacle. I remember watching from my beloved youth pastor's house where, to my disbelief, my beloved pastor and closest Christian friends cheered with joy as the Iraqi night sky lit up with balls of fire, smoke, and death, signaling the death of these strangers beneath the rubble. The celebrated spectacle led to the mutilation of over 200,000 innocent civilians, including entire Chaldean Christian communities. This was not my religion, and certainly it did not feel like the way of Jesus. I come back to this moment often in my research as a New Testament professor. It inspired me to intensively revisit the Gospels for the next two years of my life and question everything I had been taught about the life of Jesus. As I dug deeper into the world of the earliest Christians, American forms of nationalism became stranger and stranger to me, and the stranger and stranger I felt as a newly minted outsider to many of my closest Christian peers and mentors. Fast forward 20 years, and things have only become even more strange. In fact, in recent years, I've been called by other Christians a snowflake, a socialist, a democrat, for simply suggesting that Jesus' social teachings on care for the poor, inclusive table fellowship, and neighborly love are meant to be lived out in this life. Perhaps some of you have had experiences like this too. How did we get here? And what is white Christian nationalism? And how do we challenge it? The first step in challenging Christian nationalism is to define what it is. This is important because it's impossible to resist something unless you can name the objects of your resistance. 
The rise of Christian nationalism, though, is nothing new in our lifetime. Its ideological power is felt at every level of our society, from pulpits to presidency, as a pervasive permutation of Christianity that fuses God and country with a militarized, racialized, and nativist or anti-immigrant gospel. Recent work on Christian nationalism by sociologists has shown that despite the name, Christian nationalism has very little to do with Christian values or even religious commitment to a church community and everything to do with gaining and accruing political power. I will say more about this scholarship in my lecture in Professor Nichols' class later today. For now, I think the most important takeaway from this research is that Christian nationalism has little to do with following the Jesus of the four Gospels and everything to do with preserving cultural privilege and political power in society, thereby using Jesus and Christianity as vague mascots for their anger and at times violence. This anger and violence is not hard to illustrate. After all, we have photos, videos, and audio of hundreds of January 6th insurrectionists parading Christian imagery through the streets of Washington, D.C., while praying to and worshiping Jesus as they violently laid siege to the United States Capitol, the center of American democracy. Two specific images from the insurrection still distress me, and maybe you've seen these images as well. The first is of an insurrectionist holding a large poster of white Jesus with a Make America Great Again hat on, or a MAGA hat on. The other is of multiple videos of insurrectionists praying to, singing praise songs, and worshiping Jesus as they violently laid siege to the center of American democracy. When one studies these images and videos, it becomes clear that many of these insurrectionists were having a genuinely religious or even spiritual experience or what some might even call a mountaintop experience. And I'm not going to deny that from them. But who is this MAGA Jesus that these insurrectionists pray to and worship? And what's wrong with worshiping him? I think that the Jesus of Christian nationalism or what I'm going to call this morning MAGA Jesus, is in the Bible. I think we can actually find MAGA Jesus in the biblical narrative. MAGA Jesus is what ancient Jews called in Greek an Eidolon, or an idol. In the ancient world, an Eidolon meant a shadow, a phantom, or something that appears or merely seems to be. In carefully choosing this polemical Greek word, the people of God resisted the worship of objects of power, both real and imagined, that could distort one's knowledge of God. You see, idols in Jewish thought were erroneous objects of power that people pray to for benefits like protection, rain, happiness, healing, and so on and so forth. Idols in ancient Jewish thought were not something that happened in your heart, They were something that happened in your head. They were an erroneous perception of God in the mind of the worshiper. In this sense, MAGA Jesus is a made-in-America cultural fabrication, an object of worship that seems and appears to provide power, privilege, protection, and freedom to his distinctively American worshipers. 
The problem then is not whether or not Christian nationalists are having a genuine religious experience. They are. The problem is that the object of their worship is a shadow cast by white grievance toward a perceived loss of cultural power and privilege. Put simply, MAGA Jesus is a form of what ancient Jews called avodah zorah, or strange worship, or what we can call today political idolatry. Desire for power, desire for order, desire for boundaries and walls, desire for cultural homogeneity, desire for whiteness, desire for wealth, desire for law and order. The object of these desires, however, is not the power of Jesus Christ. Rather, as theologian Willie Jennings writes, this is why nationalism for us moderns is the first idolatry, because it places another god before God. It places a god bound to our nation over the god of all nations. The horror of the god bound to us nationalism is not that it wants our respect, rather it wants our desires. And so to disorient Christian nationalist desires for god bound to us nationalism, we need spaces like this today to define what Christian nationalism is and to share corporately with one another about how we can challenge it. Now is not a time to sit silent or to embrace moderate deference towards state power out of a fear of being labeled too political. Nor is it a time to give up on following Jesus on the way. Yes, this is about democracy, but for those of us who still do theology out of and for the church, this is also about idolatry enemy love, and about seeing God and neighbor rightly. That matters a lot. To dispute Christian nationalism, I'd like to suggest this morning that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. In fact, I think that Jesus offers us a model for disputing and dismantling white Christian nationalism's idols of power, racism, xenophobia, ethnocentrism, and cultural indirect violence. Put another way, the life of Jesus is one wherein the God of Israel challenges our loyalties to anti-God forces in this world, those forces that enslave our neighbors rather than liberate them from sin, debt, hate, and suffering. To be sure, during the time of Jesus when Israel was living under the colonial occupation and power of the Roman Empire, all of life was structured around what we call patron-client relationships, or the system of benefaction. The system of benefaction was an honor-shame society built around patrons at the top of society and clients at the bottom of society. Sometimes, clients were even perceived as enslaved by their patrons. In this imperial hierarchy of the Roman Empire, the emperor and his client kings were called benefactors, and they maintained their privileged status in society by offering benefits upon subordinate subjects in exchange for loyalty. But even as these powerful warrior kings were honored as benefactors, they lorded their power over distant peoples through military domination, enslavement, and the stigmatization of distant peoples as inferior. 
One ancient Greek inscription puts it this way. Kingship is established in order to bestow benefactions on mankind. Caesar Augustus, the emperor in power when Jesus was born, in another famous inscription, was considered to have towered over all the benefactors who lived before him. To put this in more perspective, a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, I went on a trip with Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary to Egypt. And at one point of our trip, we were ferrying down the Nile River about 500 miles south of the Mediterranean Sea until we got to the first cataracts of the Nile River. And at those cataracts is an, an, an ancient and very famous island where a group of Jews lived. And there's also a chapel on that island called the Temple of Philae with an honorific dedicatory inscription to the Emperor Augustus. While we were there, I found the crossbeam that went over the archway of that ancient temple. It was now on the ground, and there was an inscription on it that said this, To Dictator Caesar Augustus, Savior and Benefactor. It would not be difficult for me to provide hundreds of other examples of this, where Roman emperors and even their client kings were called saviors and benefactors during the time of Jesus. And so with this background in mind, hear our scripture for this morning one more time, and please close your eyes and listen carefully to Luke 22, 24 through 27. Luke writes that a dispute also rose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. This is the exact same Greek word used in these inscriptions to honor the Roman emperors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. For Jesus... Power in the kingdom of God is not marked by hoarding wealth, military domination, dedicatory inscriptions, or getting a prestigious seat at the banquet table. In the dispute about greatness, Jesus invites disciples to reconsider their loyalty to theologies of oppression that lord power over others. In the dispute about greatness, Jesus invites disciples to think differently about hierarchies of power that oppress the vulnerable and the marginalized. In the dispute about greatness, Jesus reminds us that imperialism through military domination, enslavement, and the stigmatization of distant peoples as inferior is incompatible with the gospel. In the dispute about greatness, Jesus invites disciples to imagine a kingdom where its citizens bear witness to God's just world by imitating the God who serves through subversive acts of neighborly love. Jesus' model of servanthood leadership is not a call to blind passivity to injustice and conflict. Rather, it is an invitation to name and confront systems of power that lord it over others. So, moments later in Luke's gospel, when the disciples' nationalist fantasy cast their gaze on swords, Jesus shouts, enough of this. And when one of them pulls out a sword anyways and strikes the ear of the servant of the high priest, Jesus shouts, no more of this. Of the maimed servant, 
Luke tells us that Jesus reached out, touched his ear, and healed him. In that healing, I think, Jesus models a subversive act of servant leadership. In that healing, Jesus incarnates the ideal benefactor who gives life rather than Lord's power over it. In that healing, Jesus overwhelms the forces of violence and xenophobia that fund Christian nationalism. The good news is not that Jesus is making America great again. Rather, the good news is that Jesus, the Lord of peace, is at work to create a global fellowship of Christ followers who repudiate ethno-racial hierarchies and God-bound to our nation ideologies. There is only one Christian nation in the world, and it's called the ecclesia, or the church. It is multicultural, it is borderless, it is weaponless, and it is the primary context in which God is at work to pacify enmity between humans and God and humans and one another. The church, I also think, is our primary context for challenging white Christian nationalism. I'd like to close this morning on more of a pastoral note. I'm guessing that there are some of you in this room today, or perhaps even many of you in this room today, who have left the church or want nothing to do with Christians or Christianity because of their hypocrisy or possibly even because of white Christian nationalism. I want you to know that I see you and I hear you. In the words of David Gushy, better is one day in the company of those bullied by Christians but loved by Jesus than thousands in the company of those wielding scripture to harm the weak and defenseless. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Thank you, Drew. As a word of benediction, let us go seeking the Jesus of peace, feeling that peace in our hearts, sharing that peace with the world. Go now in peace. And you're welcome at NC17 at noon for further discussion. So let's keep talking.